The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this edition of Sportbox. The headlines, U.S. President Joe Biden announces a new Asia-Pacific security partnership with the UK and Australia potentially upsetting China further. The United States, Australia and the United Kingdom have long been faithful and capable partners. We're even closer today. The frontrunner to succeed, Angela Merkel as Germany's next chancellor, Olaf Scholz, is summoned to appear before lawmakers over a money laundering scandal just days before the country goes to the polls. Swiss shoe company On scores an ace on its debut after shares in the Roger Federer-backed firm jump almost 50% on its New York debut. Billionaire investor Ray Dalio tells CNBC regulators will crush cryptos if they pose a threat to central banks. At the end of the day, if it's really successful, they'll kill it. And they'll try to kill it. And I think they will kill it because they have ways of killing it. And you've got SpaceX launching the world's first all-civilian crew into orbit, embarking on a three-day flight circling the Earth around about 100 miles above the International Space Station. A bit of green finally popping onto the board state side. Uh, the biggest moves to the upside we witnessed in about three weeks as investors again linked into the growth story. And that was a, a positive catalyst for markets. A fairly high volume session playing out, but uh, crucially snapping the losing streak that we witnessed for the Dow on the seven tenths of a percent, eight tenths plus on the S&P and technology stocks in play, as you can see as well. One of the big themes, energy, were a very supportive factor for the markets as investors uh, watch closely the inventory state side, but also just again, picked up on some of the growth cues. And don't forget, we've had uh, a weaker line on inflation this week. That's pulled that US yield lower. And it's been uh, a positive uh, catalyst for these markets to regroup and push back into positive territory. Uh, year to date, the Dow up now to the tune of 13 odd percent. And let's take a look at the small cap space as we just delve into various components of the market. Um, this is how the Russell performed, uh, as you can see. It's been a very choppy pace of action. Uh, the uh, pop, though, 1.1%, the best day since the 27th of August, which is sometime coming as we talk about the performance of these markets in September, where it's been uh, pretty much a loss-making trade for a lot of the, the various risk-on classes. Speaking of which, and let's take another look at those uh, Hong Kong casinos. The U.S. listings, you can see, all falling across the board. Uh, falls of 13% for Melco, a huge double-digit pullback. 6% for Wynn and Sands in a similar range. Uh, this was in response, of course, to the latest crackdown from Beijing about uh, regulations that we may see across the in, uh, on the Kotai Strip. So uh, the market responding very aggressively stateside. Let's take a close-up look at that oil trade this morning to see how we are uh, perched. You can see Brent uh, almost a third of a percent in the green, quarter of a percent higher for WTI, but uh, the natural gas trade flipping south down about two-tenths of a percent. 
the Asian markets. A uh, big focus still on the fiscal stimulus we could be seeing from the Japanese. Uh, that's a big uh, factor for the markets in Tokyo. We do have a little bit of cooling off today, but uh, one of the contenders has been talking about whether the money should be propelled into 5G and also renewable. That's just a further update around potential props for the Japanese economy. Elsewhere, you can see negativity for the Hong Kong market. That remains the case with technology probes and fresh regulation. And of course, now as we talk about the gambling market, Shanghai's done seven tenths and Australia. Big news out around uh, nuclear propulsion technology for submarines and a big deal that's been struck. The Australian market trades high by three quarters of one percent. Uh, big day for the Aussies today. Jeff. Absolutely. Let's get into this defence deal. Uh, Karen, thank you. The uh, US, Australia and the UK have unveiled a new Indo-Pacific security alliance that will see Canberra receive new nuclear-powered submarines. The agreement is seen as an effort to counter China's growing influence in the region. President Biden said the move would help to counter any developing risks in that part of the world. This initiative is about making sure that each of us has a modern capability the most modern capabilities we need to maneuver and defend against rapidly evolving threats. AUKUS will bring together our sailors, our scientists, and our industries to maintain and expand our edge and military capabilities and critical technologies such as cyber, artificial intelligence, quantum technologies, and undersea domains. Well, let's get out to Will, who's got more on the story from Sydney. It's not the most attractive of names, AUKUS, but I guess it sums up this trilateral agreement now that we'll see potentially the French here, actually, as one of the near-term losers commercially. Tell us a bit more about the sub-deal, Will. Yeah, the, the, the French are one of the big losers. But in terms of the deal, just to provide that context, so Australia has never had nuclear, nuclear capability when it does come to its submarines. And now for the first time since 1958, when the US actually shared that technology with the United Kingdom, Australia is going to be able to access that for a new round of submarines. So now what's going to end up happening is for the next 12 to 18 months, there's going to be an entire process as to designating the correct submarine to use. And here's a little bit of what Boris Johnson, the UK PM, had to say about their role in all of this. Listen in. This will be one of the most complex and technically demanding projects in the world, lasting for decades and requiring the most advanced technology. It will draw on the expertise that the UK has acquired over generations, dating back to the launch of the Royal Navy's first nuclear submarine over 60 years ago. And together with the other opportunities from AUKUS, creating hundreds of highly skilled jobs across the United Kingdom, including in Scotland, the north of England and the Midlands, taking forward this government's driving purpose of levelling up across the whole country. And all that being said, back to the French and their role in all of this, they are incredibly miffed at the moment because Australia actually had a deal with Naval Group for 90 billion Australian dollars worth of attack class submarines. That deal is now dead in the water. We actually heard some interesting commentary coming from the French Foreign Ministry and Defence Ministry in a joint statement. They didn't pull any punches when it came to the Americans' role in all of this, basically suggesting that the American choice to push aside a European ally and partner like France from a structural partnership with Australia 
at a time we are facing unprecedented challenges in the Indo-Pacific region shows a lack of confidence that France can only acknowledge and regret. This is why President Biden was quick to suggest that the, the France have an important role to play in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, the Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison earlier today was basically chorus lining the, the, the same kind of message that Australia remains a strong partner of France. But if you remember back to the G7 meetings and following on from the G7 meetings, the Prime Minister of Australia, Scott Morrison, travelled to France. He spoke with Emmanuel Macron about this deal and trying to niggle out all of the ongoing issues. And now that deal, like I said, is indeed dead in the water. So there is going to be an upcoming, a little bit of a stoush between Australia and Paris when it does come to them basically, in effect, turning down this, this $90 billion deal that's been in the works for over five years. But it is incredibly important when it does come to the, the Indo-Pacific region, this new partnership between Australia, the UK, and the US. It basically, according to one analyst that we spoke to earlier, Peter Jennings, it signals, a, I suppose, an intent from both the UK and the US to be more, even more actively in, got involved in the Indo-Pacific region. And basically, what he was suggesting as well, guys, is that as much as for example, the Australian Prime Minister tried to say this isn't about China as much as everyone else has basically avoided mentioning China that it is very much a move intended to provide some countenance to all the militarization in the South China Sea, the reimposition of an authoritarian rule, in a sense, in Hong Kong, the issues that are ongoing with Taiwan, that this move is just going to bolster the Western powers' attempts to take a bit of a, a better grasp on the situation there. And just to leave you with a little bit of reaction that we've gotten so far from China in terms of what the Chinese embassy over there in Washington had to say. They're basically suggesting that the UK, US and Australia shouldn't build exclusionary blocks targeting or harming the interests of third parties and referencing yet again, Jeff, this Cold War mentality that they do believe that all of these Western powers have been utilising when dealing with China. Well, terrific. Thank you very much indeed. I think you've, you've laid out all the details for us very neatly here. And I, just, just very briefly, because I know we've got to move on and we've got lots of other interesting stories that are maybe much more market focused in the near term. But I think this is a consequence of what we're seeing. Um, countries are being forced to pick a side. And, you know, Steve went out to Ambrosetti and the messages were, were Europe needs to be stronger. Europe needs its own defence force. And all of those comments raised questions about what the North Atlantic Treaty Alliance, the old NATO organisation, is ultimately for going forward. And I think this now just takes us another step forward here, because no doubt the French will be seething in that Gallic way that they do so well. They'll be extraordinarily angry about being pushed out of this defence contract uh, for nuclear submarines with the Australians. But to a certain extent, you can only see this really as part and parcel of initiatives that each country is pushing forward themselves. If Europe is pushing ahead and taking this political organisation into the defence realm, ultimately that excludes countries like Australia and the UK and the United States. And so we continue to move forward to this three-block structure in the world where it's the United States, it's China, and then ultimately it's the European Union. And countries like Australia and the UK are being forced to make a decision. And it appears that that decision now is to move forward in this tripartite organisation, uh, clumsily named uh, AUKUS. I think what's remarkable about this <laughs> is nobody seemed to have a whiff of this before it 
was announced formally or within the 24-hour window before we got the formal announcement. Such a major deal. I gather that the conversations had been happening for a couple of months and I wonder what transpired perhaps at Cornwall where Steve was reporting, uh, of course, uh, the the lifespan of the the current uh, submarines in Australia was running off anyway. So I wonder if those conversations were being had uh, in uh, some of these uh, geopolitical backdrops. But, I mean, we wrapped up the show yesterday covering the State of the Union from Ursula von der Leyen and the message was very strong about the need to create some form of a a European army, that there needs to be political will to use that army at some point and just how pivotal the Europeans need to be on the geopolitical stage. So it would be somewhat hypocritical to to criticise any alliance between the Americans, the British and the Australian. Uh, Don't forget old friends for many, many years when it comes to geopolitics. But I think too there's a lot about uh, a pushback against China, which nobody is really signalling up through official channels today. Don't forget there's been a huge amount of pressure on Australia around trade after they've been critical of the Chinese. And I think that also came through in a lot of the international meetings that there needs to be some form of support shown internationally for Australia. And uh, this uh, certainly shores up the defences, doesn't it, Steve? Yeah, all of the above, both of you. And I've, I've seen this, as I say, we mentioned I was down in Cornwall for the G7 and also when I was speaking to uh, Paolo Gentiloni and uh, Bruno Le Maire in Ambrosetti as well. And it is very, very clear that despite the fact that no one, apart from maybe Scott Morrison, is talking about a Cold War, maybe we are in the foothills of one as well. What is a Cold War? So I just pulled up the official definition. Uh, it is a state of political hostility between countries. I think we can say there's political hostility characterised by threats. Well, we get that from the Chinese foreign ministry on a regular basis, don't we? And dare I say it, from the West back the other way. Propaganda uh, and other measures short of open warfare. So are we in a Cold War? Well, I've just finished listening to 16 and a half hours of uh, Neil Ferguson. And I can assure you one of the summaries of his book, Doom, is the fact that very clearly we are in some form of Cold War. And he believes that the Chinese started it and are actually uh, quite happy with the state of it. Is this a bad thing for the West potentially? Well, again, according to the Ferguson uh, Um, point of view. Maybe not, actually. Maybe, actually, um, the West waking up to a political and potentially a more even serious threat that's coming from China, maybe that is what is needed for the old Western alliance. You talked about NATO as well. I think that's a very relevant point as well. NATO, of course, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, uh, originally um, brought in to face down the threat of the Soviet Union. Um, Bruno Le Maire says that still has a very big role, of course, on that front as well. But is it unwieldy? I mean, when you've got the Russians buying S-400 defense systems and then at the same time trying to buy US F-35s, it becomes a little bit confusing, NATO, doesn't it, as well? So that is one issue there. But uh, one thing I will say, we talked about these blocks, or Jeff mentioned the blocks, and and whilst I 100% agree with you, it looks like you're going to have a European defense block potentially, Uh, and maybe an Anglo-Australian US bloc as well. And of course, one perhaps with China as well. It doesn't mean to say that necessarily that the former two are going to be against each other. And Bruno Le Maire was at quite pains to point out that actually uh, that the Anglo-US bloc or blocs that are like-minded in the West outside of the EU uh, will share common interests as well. The one thing I will say is though, be interesting to hear from the German candidates as well, because don't forget, Germany, historically, for all the reasons we all know far too well, uh, is very loath to get involved in external uh, offensive um, military operations, what have you. In fact, defensively, dare I say it, the German defence spending has been woeful over the last few decades. And, and you'll have to remind me again who the last uh, German defence minister was before she became uh, the supremo down in Brussels as well. But a lot of criticism directed at that person historically.
going to say this is a separate section, but I don't think you can withdraw what's going on in the financial world from what's going on in the geopolitical world as well. But let me give you the, uh, the story. In an exclusive interview with uh, CNBC stateside, uh, Bridgewater Associates founder Ray Dalio said he sees the recent government crackdowns by Beijing as similar to that of a strict parent but that he does not expect a fundamental disruption against the free market. Asked whether he sees the Chinese economy catching up and ultimately overtaking the US, Dalio says he does see similarities between the two. It is a reality today that they're roughly comparable and that they are increasing get their strength at a faster right. rate than we are. That's a reality. And again, um, this is interesting. This next bit of sound. Let me play this to you. Because meanwhile, the founder of Heyman Capital Management, that's Carl Bass, by the way, uh, said investors would be crazy, his words, crazy to stay invested in China given the recent crackdown, telling CNBC it's open season on US shareholders. We gave them a three-year period for compliance. And, and as you know, in political uh, years, that's a lifetime. But that, that, that's basically allowing Chinese companies and whatever fraud they might be committing against U.S. investors, it's an open season on U.S. investors for the next three years. The Shanghai index over the last 10 years has annualized a positive 3.5% return. The S&P, where we have a rule of law, and the country that Ray Dalio grew up in, annualized at 14%. You're not being compensated for the risks you're taking in China. It's, it's crazy to say that you should be invested in China today. And I think there's a point there, isn't it? Are you being compensated for the risk as well? So there are three risks, as I said. I'll do them very quickly because Jeff and Karen got far more interesting and relevant things to say. One, is there a problem with China per se in terms of the fact of its stage of its economic development, the amount of debt which has been exposed by some of the companies under a lot of pressure at the moment, like the Evergrande story we're talking about? Two, is, is there going to be regulatory pressure coming from within China towards those U.S. investors that makes it very, very difficult, uh, as uh, both Dalio and Carl Bass have alluded to? And three, actually, are there going to be regulations going the other way, which are going to make it very difficult for U.S. and international investors to trade in dollars, but also invest in China as well? And it's not beyond the realms of possibility that both sides could be ratcheting up uh, the regulatory pressure. Jeff Karen. Um, well, let me ju just jump in on the back of that. Um, I just put up uh, on Twitter a day or so ago a terrific piece of video. I don't know whether you've seen it, Steve, but it's these 15 skyscrapers that are basically being blown up in a ghost town in Kunming, a city that was built for a million people that was never fully inhabited or even partially inhabited for that fact because ultimately the central government built a railway line somewhere else. But it's a metaphor for capital ultimately being misallocated and for a, an increasingly lower return on every yuan invested into the Chinese economy at the moment. And that is a structural problem, not only with the model, ultimately, of single-party communism and a planned economy, uh, but it is also a, a problem with the state at which the Chinese economy is at in that um, you now have a, a glut of producers and very limited opportunity given the restrictions on engagement with the outside world on getting higher return on every yuan invested because of that glut. Now, to come to the other problem, you've also got the issue, and I think it does meld into your geostrategic point, Steve, here. You've got the problem that you've got in, an increasingly brittle and fragile government 
that is sensitive to criticism in every area. And the latest story uh, that I saw was this Reuters report suggesting that now even Chinese brokers are under pressure not to release forecasts for the Chinese currency, which is just madness. Because if you want to encourage confidence in your currency, in your economy and in your financial assets, particularly if you want to encourage the outside world to invest, you don't do it by concealing and hiding information. So again, another worrying development here that sort of plays into Kyle's Bass's story. Just on the other side of the ledger, very briefly, of course, wherever you have opacity, you always have potential opportunity. And that's one of the dilemmas that I've got that we've got in the Western world is that there is so much clarity that it's very hard to make a higher return. You potentially could make that in China, but you might lose your shirt in the process. I mean, there have always been issues with investing in China. Uh, the lack of transparency has been there for many years. We talk about double books on the accounting side, uh, concerns around the credit quality of uh, a lot of firms, whether you haven't got a complete look at uh, what that uh, firm looks like. And of course, uh, the shadow banking system has been another threat, so just too much debt accumulated over so many years. I mean, the list has been incredibly long anyway for many investors. But the problem is, if you step back from China and you didn't invest, you didn't have any investments there, and if you were not a passive and didn't hold uh, the exposures to the country via some of those uh, EM funds, then you missed out on fairly sizable returns. And this is still the case as we talk about an economy growing very rapidly still, GDP growth expected for many, many years will continue to take up uh, many of the, the global EM indices and world indices. It's very hard to steer around China. And do you want to because of the diversification that China will also offer in a portfolio? And we've even seen it during the, the COVID crisis, China first one out, first one in, first one out, and obviously a market to play. So I think the, the wall of worry has certainly been climbed at this stage by investors and rightly so, given all the even individual industries being targeted. But uh, to completely push it out of your portfolio would seem like madness at this point, given how strong a presence it has in the global economy. Um, your thoughts always welcome. You can get in touch with us, of course, through the various uh, Twitter accounts. And um, I believe we still have an email address for the show. Uh, so if you want to get to us through that, maybe somebody will look at it. I'm sure somebody does still. Uh, let's um, push on here and let's just point out f- uh, for you uh, for more of the exclusive CNBC uh, content, including Andrew Ross Sorkin's full conversation with Ray Dalio. Head online to our premium service, uh, CNBC Pro. It's a classic Dalio performance uh, where he talks about crypto, talks about China, but also talks about why holding cash Maybe not a great idea at this time, according to him anyway. Uh, riding high in the polls, but under pressure in the Bundestag, Olaf Scholz is set to be grilled by MPs over a money laundering scandal that is engulfing the finance ministry less than a week before the federal election. And don't forget, you can always uh, listen to our Squawk podcast if you're on the road and can't catch us live. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. 
There's an awful lot going on in Germany at the moment. I'll come to my favourite story after these two reads. So, the first one. German finance minister and election frontrunner Olaf Scholz will be questioned by lawmakers next week over an alleged money laundering scandal at his ministry. German authorities raided the finance ministry last week as part of an investigation into whether staff failed to pass on fraud warnings from banks to the police. The session will come less than a week before the Germans head to the polls. Meanwhile, Olaf Scholz's Social Democrats are still topping the polls ahead of next week's German election. This despite Scholz coming under intense scrutiny over an alleged there we go, money laundering scandal, as well as a wire card and a tax fraud case, which occurred during his term as finance minister. The latest poll from YouGov puts the SPD five percentage points ahead of the Conservative CDU CSU block. But Karen, I know you're going to read on something completely different, but a lot of people now are looking at when Armin met Pauline and Romeo. Uh, they are two inquisitors who happen to be 11 years old. And I, I'm told that the interview which was first broadcast on ProSieben has gone a little bit viral due to what some people are calling the passive aggression of Herr Laschet as well. I've read the transcript. It, it reads interestingly. I would suggest any of our German speakers have a look at the video. Non-German speakers read the transcript. He was a little bit awkward for Armin Laschet with those two 11-year-old inquisitors. I haven't seen it. You're going to have to tell us a little bit more. <laughs> what was the, the context of it? Because obviously... Oh, I'll, should... I'll tell you a little bit more. Yeah. I'll, tell you, I'll tell you a little bit then. Basically, when uh, Romeo asked whether Hans-Jörg Mussen, who is the former intelligence chief who has criticised Merkel's open-door immigration policy, was far right, Laschet said, well, do you know him? Romeo replied, yes. Laschet then said, why is he far right? Romeo replied, I'm asking you. And then Pauline interjected repeatedly saying, oh, what do you like about him? Laschet apparently got very impatient. Uh, why should anything be good about him? He asked. Uh, we just want to chat here. We're not doing an advertisement for Herr Mussen, whom you don't know. Anyway, it was all rather awkward, but it carried on in that vein, apparently. I think it, it's just a reminder that you should never work with animals and children, especially if you're trying to win an election campaign, <laughs> largely. But um, our political leaders all around the world have some form, I think, on difficult conversations with children. I think back in the day, we remember George Bush in a, a classroom or two, and Michael Gove had a few issues. And then, of course, Boris Johnson rugby tackled the child to the ground, which didn't play particularly well, did it? I've got to say, that really sounded like a skit I was doing early in the week with my daughter behind closed doors around Hercules. Not something you expect to play out on the German political stage just weeks out from a, a crucial election. Uh, we're going to push on and uh, take a look at an IPO as shares and sportswear maker On jumped over 45% on their debut session in New York on Wednesday, valuing the group at over $11 billion. The company, backed by Roger Federer, sold over 31 million shares, priced at $24 apiece. The listing comes amid strong demand for athletic gear, with people taking up sports amid pandemic-induced gym closures. It does beg the question, though, is there a moat around uh, some of the traditional brands, uh, the likes of Adidas and Nike, if you can simply just create a brand overnight, take it to market and make a ton of money? You know, where is that moat? Uh, scale, isn't it? Uh, and, you know, you've got, a, you've got a, an attractive backer like Roger Federer. I think uh, you always have a moment in the sun. The question is, I, I think it's like um, what we do. Day one is always the easy day when you start a new channel. It's day two, it's week three, it's month four. It gets harder as you go along, I think, as uh, some of our uh, ex-colleagues on a uh, 
relatively new British uh, cable channel are finding out that it's not all that easy uh, just to start a TV channel and expect it to be successful from day one. I won't mention that it's Juru News, but um, <laughs> it clearly shows that there are problems. And I think in this case, you know, it's all well and good well, to have Jeff. a new sports brand. But what Jeff. will the giant rivals do? They'll either buy it or they'll compete it out of business if they can. Jeff, wasn't, didn't we have, I, I know that we're not mentioning names, so I won't mention Liam Halligan, but didn't he anchor a show on uh, GB News and it got zero ratings? And this is a man who's, uh, dare I say, been rather confident when he's come on our channel and uh, of his own opinions and of his own views being superior. Didn't he get zero viewings at all? Confident wasn't that all the, the rating still said? rate a, a zero and a one. The confidence doesn't have anything to do with viewer likability, I don't think. <laughs> I, I expect it's just teething trouble, Steve, you know, often these uh, channels have a, a very difficult They've just lost their main birth. anchor. They've lost half their producers. <laughs> I think it's more than teething trouble, Jeff. I think we've gone well off script. We were meant to be talking about a shoe launch, and, and here we are talking about uh, the fortunes of, of a television arrival. Away in the, uh, <laughs> <even arrival. laughs> in the green room, isn't he? In the um, gallery. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.